Welcome to the Friday Night Clive podcast with me, Clive Payne. In this podcast, we look back at the amazing charities, organisations and people we have chatted to over the past few months, all of whom have interesting and important stories to tell. If you're a regular listener to the programme, you'll know that Waldron's, the solicitors, come in and join me on the programme once a month to talk about uh, all legal things, really, and uh, they're lovely, and they send a different person each month. And tonight, I'm delighted to welcome Kenneth Radley-Davies to the studio. Good evening, Ken. Good evening. And thank you for joining us this evening. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about two particular elements, contested probate, but something I want to explore with you, first of all, all about landlord and tenant law. Um, and it it seems to be that we hear in the news, um, you know, certain stories about landlords who are unscrupulous. And I think it's very key. I, I want to point out from the outset that not all landlords are dodgy. The lion's share of them are jolly decent people just earning a living from their rented properties, um, you know, from their tenants in, in their rented properties. Um, but where some things can go wrong, can you give me some examples of um, the kind of pitfalls that tenants can experience perhaps with unscrupulous landlords? Well, an unscrupulous, unscrupulous landlord could um, enforce covenants within a, a tenancy agreement to ensure that certain work is done around the property. Um, and by enforcing that, they could incur costs to the tenant. Uh, but what would you, what, how would you argue that if you were a tenant and you said, well, hang on a moment, I pay my service charge every, you know, six months, year or whatever. Why do you want more money out of me? Well, you've got to differentiate between a, a short, short-old tenancy and a lease. Now, a lease is a long... Uh, agreement between you and a landlord and within that lease you'll have service agreement uh, service covenants in which you should be paying towards the maintenance of the property um, the landlord him- himself will be outside that um, and they will may have a, a management company uh, which will oversee any works that need to be done under the lease when you come to the shorthold properties that's usually a six-month tenancy which may roll over into a periodic monthly tenancy um, they won't necessarily have those sort of uh, clauses within them so yes they can be enforced and they can be enforced quite strictly uh, by service of various notices most particularly a 146 notice to tell the tenant that they're in arrears with certain services or rent payments and that they should be making payment of those within a specified period. So what happens then using that scenario? So let's say I rent a property for six months because I'm working in a particular area. Uh, and then the, the landlord, I'm, I'm paying my rent and I'm, I'm up to date and everything. And my landlord then still says to me, you know, you need to pay for you know, a new boiler or, or towards a new boiler or towards this or towards that. Where do you stand legally then? There will be a covenant within the lease which says that you are obliged to pay for those. Now, if you're in a multiple occupation lease with, say, you ha- own one blo- one re- unit within a number of units, that will be spread amongst the whole of the unit. So you'd pay a proportion of that cost. But if it's your personal boiler in that property then you would be liable for the whole cost regardless of the fact that you would pay, you'd be paying rent 
Regardless of that, that rent is separate. Now, I would have argued vehemently that if I was a tenant and I was paying rent for a property, that that would go towards not only, um, you know, the privilege of living there, but towards the upkeep of it. So if something went wrong, it would be the landlord's responsibility to sort that. Again, we got you've got to differentiate between a, a longer lease mm. and an assured shorthold. And there are assured shorthold tenancies, yes, you, you would turn around to your landlord and say, sorry, that's your responsibility, you've got to get that fixed. Obviously, if it's been the damage has been caused by the tenant, then the tenant may. Yeah, be I mean, liable. If, that's right. I mean, if the ta- if the tenant damages the property or in any any way, shape, or form, then yes, you could understand that. Yeah. Um, I mean, what sort of other pitfalls can tenants um, find themselves in? The majority will be um, non-payment of rent, or the landlord wants the property back. Uh, if that is the case, then you've got two different methods of doing it. One is a Section 21 notice, and the other one is a Section 8. Now, a Section 21 notice is a no-fault termination of the tenancy agreement, which is an assured shorthold tenancy agreement. It doesn't apply to longer leases. If that's served on you, you have two months in which to vacate the property. If you don't vacate at that point, you can be taken to court, and the landlord can seek a possession order against you. There are a number of uh, hoops that the landlord has got to jump through legally to be able to get that uh, possession order, but they're not rigorous in in their nature. They're just careful administration of what the landlord needs to provide. Two months doesn't sound long, though. It's not long. There has been, in the recent past, a bill passed through Parliament to abolish the Section 21. Um, it Last, it went for a second reading just before Christmas, and uh, it's been put on hold for the moment while reforms take place to the judicial system to enable a new court for these type of possession proceedings to be developed. It's unlikely in the near future or in the medium future that these will be uh, brought in. So at the moment, we're stuck with two months notice if you're in wales it's different they've changed the whole rules over there um they've abolished the section 21 altogether the the new rules are that you have six months notice so if you have a six-month tenancy first of all you literally have 12 months in the property before you can be uh evicted Okay, so you mentioned a Section 8 notice. How does that differ? The Section 8 notice uh, has 17 different grounds in Crikey. which you could seek possession of the property. And they're all to do with breaches of a tenancy agreement. The majority of them will be rent arrears. Now, that's the under Ground 8, 10 and 11. These are, uh, Ground 8 is a mandatory ground. That means the court can't chain, uh, has to make an order. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, anything under Section 8 from 9 up to 17 is a discretionary grounds for the, for the court to be able to say, well, no, we're not going to give a possession order if this happens within a specified time. Um, as I said, the majority of them will be under rent arrears. That's the majority of ones that go to court. You've got to have two months rent arrears before or four weeks rent arrears before 
you, you can seek uh, a possession order. And if the tenant pays before that goes to court, it could remove that altogether. It depends what else has been cited alongside it. So can landlords just evict people now? Because we've heard stories like that, particularly where students are, cons- are concerned that they find themselves on the street at the drop of a hat. Now, I guess that's where the Section 21 comes in because you've got that two-month window. But why have we heard in, in the news in times past that people have just suddenly been, you know, uh, what they call a no-fault eviction? Well, the no-fault eviction is a Section 21 notice. Yeah. There's only two ways of getting possession uh, of a property in this country, and that is either by surrender or agreement with the landlord to surrender the property, or through a court order. So if anybody's kicked out prior to uh, a court order, then that could be uh, an unlawful eviction. It would really depend on the terms of the tenancy agreement, but... Uh, if it falls inside what we call an assured shorthold tenancy agreement, then it, they cannot be removed from the property without a court order or if they surrender it themselves. It seems to me now that tenants have a, a bit more, a few more rights and a bit more sort of, you know, uh, traction really with this. Because as I've said in the past, you've heard stories, particularly on the news, where people have found themselves, you know, on the streets almost mm. for the most ridiculous reasons. Yeah, I agree. Uh, recently, th- the whole Section 21 non-fault eviction has been tightened up and that w- those are the uh, hoops I was telling you that the landlord has to jump through now one of them is to have um, a deposit tenancy deposit scheme set up if they have a deposit uh, the other one is an EPC energy performance certificate and a gas safety certificate and if these aren't there when you go to court the court has no discretion but to dismiss your application. Right. Yeah. So it is moving in towards tenants, but it's still some control the landlords have over that. For anybody listening, thinking that they're in a position now to get their own property but can only afford to rent as opposed to buy at the moment, um, what advice would you give them uh, before actually starting to, to you know, look at, at rented properties from a legal perspective? Um, go to a reputable uh, agent, really. Um, don't go to somebody who's a bit sketchy around the edges, um, it's difficult to, to say w- what you should be looking for, but a reputable agent would be a good start. Yeah, so do some research and yeah, ask do around. some research and um, yeah, uh, go online, Google a few things, go to the more established uh, letting agents, and then you should be okay. What sort of things, obviously without breaching confidences, what sort of things do you find that you're having to deal with within Waldrons then when things go wrong for tenants? We usually end up uh, picking up the things that have gone slightly wrong by landlords, uh, believing they could go through the whole process of possession claims and either serving the wrong documents on the tenant and then seeking a possession order say they served a section 8 notice and then they went through the whole section 21 process it's a different 
um, administrative l- track involved in that. Um, different paperwork needs to be filed. So we end up resolving those situations. So we come in towards the middle of it, really. Um, ideally, it would be better to start the whole process off ourselves, but that's what we end up doing and do you find that the landlords or even tenants do that through naivety rather than than malice or or you know criminal oh, intent? Absolutely, absolutely. No one's taught how to deal with these things. Yeah. I wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. I mean, I've never no rented, but no I one, wouldn't know where to start. Exactly. No, no one's shown. No one's taught. No one's told. Uh, you pick it up through hearsay. Uh, that's that's why we exist because we're the experts in this particular area. We've been dealing in the black country since 1867. The law has changed slightly <laughs> in that time. Um, but we are a solid uh, firm that deals with these issues and can help out landlords and tenants where needed. For somebody, again, who is presently in a rented property and they think that things are starting to go wrong for whatever reason, what should be the first step that they take? Well, the first step is to contact their landlord. If the problem is the landlord, then they, they need to be able to reach out to firms like us or the Citizens Vice Bureau to discuss those problems and see where they can go. It's not a good idea to sit back and just worry about it, get some advice and see what you can do. And like anything, I guess the advice also would be to keep a, keep a copy of everything, any emails that are sent, any letters, anything like that, because yeah. you may need that later down the line should things remain unresolved. Exactly. If you have a conversation with your landlord, make a verbatim note of it afterwards, and any emails and that sort of, as you say, keep them as a record of what's going on. Okay, let's move on to contested probate. Well, I've heard of probate and I've heard of contesting wills, but is contested probate one and the same, or is that something completely different? This, is, is, another, one, it, this, is, this is another one of your, your personal areas of expertise, isn't it? It is an area I deal with, yes. Um, probate is when a person dies with a will, and that will goes off to be certified through probate and you're granted probate so that the administrators of the estate can deal with that estate. What can happen in that is that you get one party who disagrees with something under the will or that there's a valid will there or that they just disagree with the person who's going to be dealing with the estate. They don't feel that they could handle it properly. Mm -hmm. Um, in, In that case, you can file what we call a caveat. That prevents probate going through is a notice to every probate office in the land to say this cannot progress further than it is at the moment that lasts for six months and you can renew it after that you don't have to do anything once it's been filed but it can be contested so what we normally do is if somebody's filed a caveat we file a, a warning to a caveata uh, that's basically a counter notice saying, right, you file the caveat, you've got to stand up in court and explain the reason why you are making this, uh, opposing the uh, granting of probate on this particular issue or on the particular will. Um, and once 
that can be then go into a bigger matter altogether. It can be uh, go into a full claim, or it could just end the, the situation altogether. Majority of the ones we deal with, we file a warning to caveat. Uh, it ends it there and then. There, there is n- no real inducement on anybody who's contesting a will to go further if they haven't done that already. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't understand why somebody would contest a will. What sort of examples or situations exist where, where that, then, that may be necessary? It could be necessary because uh, there's been... Um, the person who made the will was coerced into making that will, so it can be contested from that point but of view. how can you prove that? That's one of the more difficult ones. You, you can argue it till the, the sun sets, but, yeah, it, it's very difficult to uh, to prove. You have to have substantial evidence that there has been coercion and that the, that has changed the mind of the person who's created that will. Um, another one would be that the will is invalid because it either hasn't been signed properly or a witness hasn't been authentic. It was a false witness um, or a forged witness um, or just basically that the person who's going to be dealing with the estate doesn't really have the means and ability to deal with it in an effective way. Because once the person takes control of the estate, they become a trustee of that estate and they have legal obligations which they must perform for that estate to function properly. Um, If the only thing under the will is that there's bequests and there's nothing left over at the end of it, then once the administrator has dealt with that, that brings an end to it. But if you've got a large estate where you have capital left at the end, which is left in trust for somebody else, that trustee then has to deal with that capital and deal with it to the best of their ability. That's the majority of the problems that can come in at that point. I remember, sadly, my accountant dying uh, about six years ago, and he was a personal friend, and a number of us were executors of his will. There was three of us. Um, No, there was five of us. Um, And it was a complicated estate, um, and (laughs) I think it put years on us, um, to be honest with you, because it was forever. um, It's just before the pandemic. Uh, but uh, you, you know, so we were able to meet and discuss, but there were lots of phone calls and emails and things going all over the place. And of course, the idea of somebody leaving a will is so they have control as to whom their estate is left to. What happens if somebody dies intestate, i.e. not leaving a will? Well, there are different rules in relation to that. You can get what we call a grant of letters. Uh, it's very similar to the to the grant of probate in that you give somebody control over that particular estate. Um, there are other rules. So if you have a surviving uh, spouse, then the rules of survivorship will kick in and the estate will transfer to them up to a certain value. And if they've no surviving spouse and you look at uh, first blood children and if there are no first blood children you'd be looking at uh, stepchildren so it, it there is a cascade effect uh, involved in that but can it kind of cascade upwards in the sense that if the individual is unmarried and doesn't have any children and doesn't have any siblings 
What happens then? Well, if they if they die with nobody being able to uh, uh, inherit the assets from the estate, they will go to uh, the Duchy of Lancaster, I think mm-hmm. it is. Um, so it, it basically it goes to the state. Um, and it's an old phrase, which unfortunately you caught me on the hop on this one. <laughs> But it, it does happen, though. Unfortunately, you hear stories of people who perhaps say, oh, I don't believe in wills, or they keep putting it off and putting it off. And then a tragedy befalls them, and sadly they've passed, but they've left carnage behind because they have an estate that, that you know, that, that is intestate. Yeah. It, 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 we deal with this day in, day out, and it is very sad to see. Um, it creates all sorts of problems, my advice is see a solicitor, get a proper will drawn up. If you've had a will in the past and you need to change it, make sure that the old will is revoked. It should automatically be done so anyway, but just make sure that it is and that it's properly uh, witnessed so that you have a valid will at the end of, the, end of your mm-hmm. life because that is your last last thing you're ever going to do well that's why it's called the last will and testament isn't it really i mean when my mum died back in 2005 um i hadn't had a will up till that point but i decided that it would be sensible to do and it's had a couple of revisions since and it had Mm. a revision back in 2022 but i am single unmarried no siblings no children no other surviving relatives but i still knew that i had to do a will yeah because um, it would have left carnage for my solicitors. Absolutely. And under your will, you you may have left it to Battersea Dogs Home or some other charity, cancer research, or anything like that. You can do that. But if you die in test state, there is no control that you have during your life over what happens to your assets after your death. Yeah. So you die in test state, there's a huge squabble no- normally. And that's what you want to avoid, really. And, it, you know, it's, it's not nice for anybody and, and stressful for those relatives who are left behind. Absolutely. But, but if you feel that you need, that you disagree with the will of someone who is passed away and you need to contest it, what should be your first step? Well, the first step is to place a caveat against any probate. Um, you can do it... Sorry, um, could you rephrase the question? Yeah, well, it, let, let's say let's say I was to die this evening, heaven mm-hmm. forbid, and I didn't have a will. Um, uh, sorry, and I did have a will, yep. but but somebody um, con- wanted to contest it because they they didn't agree with what I'd done. Yeah, sorry, I thought you asked if you hadn't got a will. No, sorry. Um, yeah, if you get a will, then it's a caveat, and you place that on notice, as to say, with the probate office to say that you contest this will. Now, you don't have to do anything for six months, but frivolous uh, caveats can be dismissed by the court without consultation with anybody. Um, So if you have a genuine reason, and you should only be making a caveat if you have a genuine reason why you're disputing a will, then it's quite a legitimate process to take place. You should then put forward your argument to the people who are dealing with the uh, the probate. Uh, so if it was us over in Waldron's, we would get a letter from the other side saying, we dispute that you've got a right to go for it for various reasons. 
Um, if you don't do that, then it's just going to sit there. And that's where we, I come in because I deal with the disputes resolution side rather than the family side. Um, I will file what, what I've explained earlier on, the warning to the caveator to remove it or to go to uh, the probate office and give a reason why they are making this caveat against this, uh, the issuing of this probate. Okay. Now, of course, any solicitor, any legal firm can do that, but obviously this is something that, that you in Waldron specialise in. Where can we get more information then, Ken? Um, on our website, uh, which is... waldrons.co.uk. Thank you. Yes. Um, and uh, if, you, uh, if you don't use the internet or you want to talk to somebody, you can ring Waldrons during office hours as well. Absolutely, yes. Which is 01384 811 811. That's it. Lovely. Kenneth Radley Davies from Waldron Solicitors. Thank you very much for talking to Friday Night Live. That is your lot for this episode. You can catch the programme live every Friday night on Black Country Radio from 6 o'clock p.m. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe by heading to blackcountryradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. See you very soon. This is a Black Country Radio podcast presented by me, Clive Payne, and produced by Andy Caddick.